Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi, everyone. My name is Gabrielle Bond. Um, I am an activist and organiser in Adelaide, South Australia, land of the Ghana people. Um, I run a group called the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group with a whole bunch of volunteers. And I'm also a, uh, I'm the CEO of Modern Money Lab, uh, where I work with Stephen Hale. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Gabby. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good morning, everybody else. Uh, and uh, my name's Stephen, as, as Gabby just said. I'm an adjunct associate professor at Torrens University and an economist with Modern Money Lab. Today, we're joined by somebody who, in my opinion, is one of the world's most important economists with a long list of journal papers and an even much longer list of media appearances. He developed a mathematical model of Hyman Minsky's financial instability hypothesis during the 1990s, which allowed him to predict the global financial crisis. His 2001 book, Debunking Economics, is one of my favourite books. It's one of the best critiques of neoclassical economics ever written. His Minsky software package is being used increasingly widely for realistic economic modelling. And his recently released book, The New Economics, A Manifesto, incorporates everything I just said and much more, including a realistic incorporation of energy into economics and a demolition of the treatment of climate change in neoclassical mm. economics. Steve is a Senate candidate in Australia for a new political party called TNL or the New Liberals in this year's Australian federal election. And I'd like to, first of all, uh, offer you a warm welcome, Steve. And secondly, ask you why you're doing this thing. Why are you standing? <laughs> well, um, the, the actual, the actual um, line that came to me was that I've failed to get the ear of politicians. So why not try to get the mouth of one? Uh, because you know, you know, we know the frustration where we, we say, you know, government debt is not debt. Government mm. creates money, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go and read the next day's newspaper reports and it's, oh, we're going to go bankrupt because we're borrowing too much to, to run the deficit, et cetera, et cetera. And you think, for Christ's sake, you bastards are never going to listen to us, are you? Well, I might become one of you. And then you're going to have to listen to me inside the Senate chamber. So that's the basic motivation. Well, that's that's pretty well said. <laughs> I, think. I mean, we 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 definitely do try and meet with politicians and uh, you know give them a copy of Stephanie's book and say, here, look, it's all in in this book. If you just read it, um, you'll you it'll completely blow your mind. Um, and uh, we've had sort of warm to lukewarm to cool to frosty receptions, but yeah, I think it. Yeah, you'd be hard to press to find a politician who will outrightly say, um, uh, explain how, how you just explained um, that the difference between a currency issuer and a currency user. Yeah, I had a meeting with uh, a um, somebody who will soon, if Labor win the election, be a cabinet minister with okay. Stephanie when she was in Australia. And the only thing that this person could think of to talk about at the meeting was to ask Stephanie how come Bernie Sanders was so popular and uh, <laughs> whether she had any magic uh, magic uh, prescription for the ALP, which wasn't doing so well at that stage, to, to garner some of that popularity themselves. You've written the, or much of, I don't know whether the whole of, uh, TNL's economics platform, Steve. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the interesting thing was I, uh, you know, I, I was just observing the party when it first turned up because Victor Klein's um, uh, profile has got a fairly aggressive statement saying, we're not going to keep the bastards honest, we're going to put the bastards behind bars. And mm. that, you know, that was fairly emphatic and probably more emphatic than I would have been willing to, to, to be, even though I've got heartily sick of watching the, the obvious corruption in Australian politics these days. Um, mm. So, but that had me intrigued. And then out of the blue, he wrote to me saying, would you like to be our economic advisor? And um, I, just, I sort of asked, well, you know, why did you choose me? He said, I've read Debunking Economics. No, excellent. Said, oh, okay, cover to cover. So um, there, there is immediate awareness of, um, of my approach to economics. And mm. then he's also uh, read a lot of the work on modern monetary theory. So he's actually, Victor is a, is a lawyer by profession. He... Now it makes his living these days editing the law reports. That's he's not practicing as a lawyer directly, but he's doing the, the law report editing. So he had, had to train himself in a different area once he mm. decided he wanted to start a political party. And mm. I, I had great respect for that. And the more I've got to know him, the more I've got to like him and respect yeah. him as a person as well. So um, hence, I first of all accepted the uh, request to be their advisor. And then uh, he decided, well, it was worth having a punt at the um, uh, the North Sydney electorate he lives in as a House of Reps member, member and yeah. he asked me to take over the Senate. So I, was, I thought, well, why not? In for a penny, in for a pound. I think um, the Senate the Senate should be much more achievable than winning a lower house seat when you're not um, a, a member of a major party pre-selected into a kind of, you know, with the party machine behind you. Um, and we, so, we speak as we, we've just been in an independence campaign in South Australia, she might actually win the person that we were. It, it's still not decided, but it is very, very difficult. But um, the Senate is maybe uh, a possibility, as Gabby was saying. It's it's mm. easier. I mean, the, the thing about the Senate, are we, we've got an international audience here or an Australian audience? Uh, I think there's quite huh? a big Australian audience, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Because Australia's Senate, Senate position is quite unusual. It is, it, Americans are used to having two senators per state, we have 12, um, mm. and half of them are elected every year. So uh, the, the elections last normally three years. It's, that's the maximum term. Um, so when you're elected as a senator, you're there for six years. And yes. to get elected, you need one-seventh plus one vote. Okay, that's that's the base. They right. call that a quota. So, yeah. okay, and so in the, that means about 14.5% of the vote will get you elected. But it's not just first the path, past the post, it's preferential. So you, you number the candidates at least numbers one to six for parties. And so if I if uh, it's quite possible to get very low vote as a first preference vote, but mm. get additional distributions, first of all, for people who might put you second and their party gets a lower number of votes again and their vote gets passed to you. Mm. All the major mm. parties get two but not three quotas and then their excess votes are distributed. So there's, it, yeah. it's a strong possibility, but um, I've handicapped myself, I'm afraid to say. Oh, why's that? I've got prostate cancer. Oh, goodness. So, me. yes, so I was, um, I, I've got to go for the, the biopsy and then have it, uh, if that proves to be as positive as the blood test turned out to be, then I'll be having a uh, an operation before the election is called. So for about four weeks, I'll be out of uh, out of commission. And I'm doing the best I can now to put myself out mm -hmm. there and to put my mm. keen for the Senate website together. But, uh, you know, if you want a handicap, I chose a pretty good one. Mm. Oh, wow. When did you get this news? 
uh, when I was out in Australia in in January. So I, I, or rather December. I like I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not exactly your spring chicken career politician. So I turn mm -hmm. 69 um, mm -hmm. next week, and mm -hmm. uh, I thought I'd do a, uh, an overall, you know, check my the state of my health when I came back to Australia in mm -hmm. early uh, December, and then. I didn't expect, I've had some sort of warning, um, uh, mm. the usual hassles a guy gets when prostate cancer comes his way. Mm. Um, but I thought I'd be, you know, I thought I'd reasonable odds, mate, because two of my brothers-in-law have had it as well. And bang, mm. I found, no, I've joined them. So we now have, we now share pro prostate stories mm. and we'll shortly be storing prostate war stories. So, um, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And so you're having the operation here in Australia? In Thailand. Uh, because when, when, when I, I mean, my, my personal situation is crazy. I'm currently back in Amsterdam, which is where mm. I was living when COVID broke out. My wife, who's lived here for 25 or 30 years, uh, is Thai, and Thailand was doing so much better on COVID than... Uh, than uh, so we decided that we're getting out of here. We just went back mm. to Thailand, spent mm. about two years there, and now I've decided to um, probably settle over there permanently. So I'm selling the apartment here, and then we move back and are buying a place in, in Bangkok, but of course, uh, if I'm successful in the election, then I'll be uh, joining the renting class in in Sydney, and renting yes, and living in Sydney. Yeah, back yeah. to Australia if you're successful. Yeah. Well, I hope very much you will be successful. So do I. So do I, <laughs> yeah. mate. But I'm just being realistic. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's a tough ask. It was hard enough yeah. with the invisibility of the independence and so on to to have a a cancer diagnosis thrown in the middle of the campaign, just yeah. sort of releases, you know. Yeah, well, you're still on the ballot paper. And please, if you're living in New South Wales, when you come to election time, look for that box TNL on your big white ballot paper. Put a one in that box. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And check out Keen for the Senate and TNL's platform online. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, wish we, do we have a TNL candidate in South Australia? Do you know? Uh, you have some of the, there's, there's at least one candidate who's, uh, I'll just actually, I'll just bring up the website and just, Take a look. Uh, oh, of course, I've got to go across to Chrome now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the computers, they're breaking down about as much as human society seems to be. But if you, uh, I was looking at Chris's last name, because our prominent candidate in South, South Australia, his mm. first name is Chris, and that's how I know him. He's got to check and get his second, his second name right. So he is, he says, filling in time while the... Uh, <laughs> Where the pages turn, Chris Schmidt, and he's a candidate oh, yeah. for Sturt. Okay. okay. He's been an activist for disabled people for quite a quite a while, mm -hmm. and um, that's he's one he's one candidate you have in South Australia, and I'll say so running in a lower house seat, not, not only one, only one. Yeah. Okay, lower house seat. So the lower the house seat, yeah, in right. Sturt. The electorate of Sturt is um, quite a big one. Is it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah. So that's north, northeast of Adelaide. It's where the sitting member used to be Christopher Pine and is now. Oh, well, that's um, a good seat to toss. It's actually the second most marginal in South Australia. The most marginal. Oh, right. is, yeah. So yeah. Uh, good luck. Good luck, Chris. Um, all the best to you. Anyway, Steve, if there's anything that we can do to help with your campaign. And that extends to uh, even if uh, you want somebody to do the best to do an impression of you <laughs> at, at, at an event when you're unavailable, then just let us know. 
That's a good offer, Stephen. I'll take I, you up I, on that, I think. Yeah. I, often, I often do an, uh, an amateur version of Stephanie Kelton. <laughs> I, I, I can try and do an amateur version of Steve Keen. He shares the same uh, first name, so, you know, glasses, 60-ish, easy. I've actually been talking with Stephanie about uh, doing a joint paper on modern monetary theory using my Minsky mm -hmm. software on one side to emphasise the case she makes with uh, uh, with, you know, with conceptual logic. And, uh, of course, it's going to be the, it'll be the SKSK paper. <laughs> I would too. Excellent. Yeah. And for anybody out there, if they are uh, the the initial part of looking through at Steve's software, I think it's is it called uh, MMT for Dummies or something like that. Yeah, There's I've got an idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you have, have you read that chapter? I have read that chapter. Yeah, I'll probably use that uh, in uh, some courses we're developing uh, yeah, later on in the year. The, 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 the beauty of doing it with Minsky is it makes the case that, you know, Bill and, and Randy and, and Stephanie have been making for ages. It's simply the accounting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not anything radically new way of running an eco economy, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's what happens when you look at how the money flows from one bank account to another. And the uh, and so, the, you know, like I can I can do the basic case of modern monetary theory in terms of showing the government as a money creator, not a money borrower in about mm -hmm. 10 minutes. And yeah. uh, once you've seen it like that, it's very hard to unsee it. But the trouble is we have politicians who are, are first of all, been trained in neoclassical economics, whether they realise that's what they're being trained in or not. And mm -hmm. that gives them that supply and demand way of thinking about everything, uh, mm -hmm. which is which are fictions. Whereas yeah. modern monetary theory is based on the hard accounting that's involved in running, uh, having a, a mixed fiat credit uh, economy. And it's Not certainly only the cheaper. politicians either, to the, some of the economists, well, most of the economists too. Oh, they're, 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 they're write-offs. I mean, one, one thing I've got more and more inclined to believing as, as time has gone on is there's no point trying to convert a neoclassical economist. Simply, it's the same way that Max Planck found he couldn't convert a Maxwellian physicist to understand quantum mechanics. Uh, he just had to rely yeah. upon them all getting old enough to die and or, or retire and have to be replaced by young people who understood quantum mechanics and were willing to continue working at it. And economics is cursed, as you would have seen I write in uh, Manifesto, Stephen, uh, by the fact that um, um, they, they, um, the crises, the, uh, the anomalies for economics aren't like a, a physics experiment. Uh, you can forget about the anomaly. And that's what happens. And they continue getting true believers to replace them. And on, on you go with the same old ideology uh, mm. after crisis after crisis. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to try to convert them, that's for sure. Ignore them and overwhelm is a better better approach. Yeah, although I, I think there are some, uh, I mean, Steve, Stephen, you're, you're one of them who, who has actually sort of thought about what's really going on and changed your view. But I'm a nobody, Gabby. It's much, it was much easier for me. If you're just an economics teacher, which is essentially what I am, you don't have uh, you don't have uh, as much skin in the game, and also mm -hmm. you're probably not quite as arrogant as uh, as yeah. a famous uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, professor of economics, and I could name several. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and arrogance is definitely part of it. The American system tends to generate arrogant individuals. It's either selects them or it generates them or it creates them. But um, the level mm -hmm. of arrogance that economists have is quite breathtaking after you've been having spent 50 years working with them. I'm rather sick of their arrogance when they, from what I can tell, they know damn uh, bugger all, apart from their yeah. own theory. Yeah. 
I do know that feeling of being the only one in an economics department that <laughs> disagrees <laughs> with everybody else. Yes. Steve, I, know you talked, I know you've probably talked about this many, many, many times and you're probably a bit sick of it, but uh, I wonder if for your listeners uh, you might um, be able to talk a little bit about um, the what I, I heard you explain it to Daniel very, very clearly on, on the coal miners driving Tesla's episode, which I uh, urge mm. everybody to go check out, about the assumptions that go into uh, when the economists are advising the IPCC and some of the incredibly, yeah, yeah. incredibly yeah. mind-blowingly oh, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I still remember because uh, I, I didn't get work, working in, in climate change research until I'd actually done something that I regarded as a positive contribution of my own. And that was mm. showing how you could bring energy into a production function and, mm. and show the role of energy because both neoclassical economics and post-Keynesian economics, when they model, they show output being produced by combining capital and labor. They don't have energy going in and they don't have raw materials going in. And I realized yeah. that you know you, 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 nothing can be done with that energy. Labor with that energy is a corpse. Capital with that energy is a sculpture, and then that let me make a positive contribution. So then I thought mm. I'd read the the neoclassical stuff. I didn't expect much. What mm. I thought what what I thought I'd find is that they were taking models by scientists of the damage that climate change would do to the biosphere, and then mm. putting an economic twist on it and putting a high discount rate, and the high discount rate meaning that they came up with trivial numbers. Instead, mm. I found they made up their own bloody numbers with absurd yeah. assumptions that any science would throw out the window. You, your paper would be rejected mm. on site. And the, the the first one, which was the, that I came, the, I mentioned the second one because it's it's obviously stupid. And mm. this is that um, uh, when they do what they call, the, they, they do what they call an enumerative approach to add up the damages from climate change. So you work out yeah. what's going to be damaged here and damaged there and you add them all up and it's an adding up process. And they started, from, and, you know, that, that could work sort of, you know, but what they assumed was that 87% of industry would be unaffected by climate change because it occurs in quote unquote carefully controlled environments. Mm. And when, when you look at the list of, this is the Nordhaus in 1991, when you look yeah. at the list of industries that he said were in carefully controlled environments, all of manufacturing, mining, which I think is hilarious, he didn't realize about undergrad mining, all of wholesale and retail services all of the finance sector and all of the government. And that's 87% of the American economy. And so this just shows you about that. extreme weather, um, uh, you know, supply chain breakdowns, anything. Yeah, none of that. And, and like, and, and, and none about running out of energy, because if you run out of energy, if you suddenly find you can no longer use fossil based energy because the climate changes are so calamitous that you, there's a decision, that's it. We just mm. can't put any more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Then mm. the energy available for production would fall by 80%. And when you mm. look at the relationship of energy to GDP and change in energy to change in GDP, it's virtually one for one. So if we had that much of a fall in energy, there'd be that much of a fall in GDP. Yeah. And yet they assume, uh, and I actually saw a paper that's actually said this, that if you had... Uh, his, his example I gave was a 10% fall in energy would cause a 0.4% fall in GDP because you can substitute labour and capital for energy. I mean, that's that, garbage, you know? Complete garbage, yeah. Complete that's garbage. Ridiculous, that's ridiculous as assuming we could do without agriculture. Yeah. Because well, that's, yeah, yeah. GDP. But that's, that's well, built into the, that's built into the way they model. 
Um, so that was one. They, they, they then assumed that they could use data on the relationship between temperature and income today to predict what's going to happen out of climate change. Mm. Now, as soon as yeah. you make that assumption, you've trivialized it because you know, know instantly that, like America, you look at continental America, New York is about 10 degrees Celsius colder than Florida. Mm. And, mm. Has, and Florida has a 20% lower GDP per capita than New York. So once you say that, you then say, well, the 10 degree increase in global temperature would only reduce GDP by 20%. That is brain dead stupid. Okay. But that's yeah. what they've done. Well, and, and, we'd all be yeah. dead, basically. To be honest, Steve, like when, I, when I saw you uh, claiming that, I actually had to go and check. Yeah, it good. So I thought, I think you had a nervous breakdown or something. This can't be right. I know, I know. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the funny. My, my wife may well walk in while we're recording this, but mm. it was in this room when I first read that paper about uh, the, saying that they thought that the relationship between temperature and GDP over space, meaning i.e., what happens today mm. with our current mm. climate, can predict what's going to happen. We radically change the climate by increasing mm. the amount of energy we retain from the sun. And I just mm. thought, you bloody morons! And I had my hand. Mm. I was like this, and my mm. wife, who's yeah. Buddhist walked in and saw me like this and said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm just, I'm reading climate change. She said, oh, why do you read that stuff? Nobody wants to know about it. You can't change anything. If we die, we die. <laughs> so uh, that, broke yeah. me, that broke me out of it. It was a very depressed funk when I saw it. But it was just like realising they've got some moron on the deck of the Titanic who reckons that the icebergs are made of fluffy clouds that can clean the exterior of the ship as he goes through the ice field. <laughs> it's about that smart. It, and, and yeah. so, you know, I, I expected to have to explain why um, a Ramsey growth model is an inappropriate framework for analysing uh, growth over time and climate change. But mm -hmm. I haven't even got to that stage. I haven't mm -hmm. needed to because their assumptions are so, if I can use French, I would, effing mm -hmm. stupid. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet on the basis of those effing stupid assumptions, they put out numbers to two decimal places of accuracy, of course, yeah. uh, which when, when politicians look at them, they say, Oh, so a four-degree increase in temperature is going to reduce GDP in 2100 by 3.67%. That's a quote uh, from a 2021 paper, 3.67% compared to what it would have been in the complete absence of climate change when we also they also tell us that the economy is going to grow by roughly 2% per year. And so it's going to be five times the size it is now, and it'll only be a little 3%, 4% smaller. Why worry about it? And that's exactly the, the way that I think politicians have thought about it. They haven't seen mm -hmm. anything saying human civilization will be destroyed at four degrees Celsius. Um, but that's... Well, that message is starting to get out there now and ordinary people are starting to, uh, it's starting to enter people's consciousness much more, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So politicians aren't going to be able to get away with just ignoring things forever. The trouble is, is how catastrophic are those changes going to be? So we've had you know, the fires in Australia. We had the floods yeah. just recently in Australia. Uh, we're going to have floods again by the looks of it in the same areas that got hit um, uh, by those catastrophic floods to a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, so it's if, if you've waited this long, then you're no longer in a situation where you can you know taper towards a, a reasonable outcome. You're an overshoot and you've got to yeah. – uh, and, and will, will your political system hold up? That's really the question I think that we face. And one reason I'm going to Parliament is I want to be able to say in Parliament on Hansard just how yeah. delusional these assumptions are by economists and therefore their comfortingly small numbers are completely not just wrong, 
they're dangerously wrong. Yeah. Do you see any sort of positive um, changes in the, like in the IPCC, because there was a recent recent report out, um, do you see the ridiculousness being toned down and some sensible voices coming in? Funny you should ask me that. Uh, I'll actually go back to the page where I'm, uh, uh, where I've where I've highlighted it, and this uh, the of course you have the uh, the economists have got their own little section inside mm. here, and on page sixteen sixty five of the the chapter of the book, which of the because it's it's a three and a half thousand page yeah. document. Yeah. I mean this is partly if you wanted to make people not read something, why not write something three and a half thousand pages long and don't mm. call it War and Peace? Um, but on page on page 65, chapter 16, page 65, uh, here is um, a, a quote from The Economist. With historically observed levels of adaptation, warming of about four degrees Celsius may cause a 10 to 23% decline in annual global GDP by 2100 relative to global GDP without warming. Hmm. Now, those are yeah. bigger numbers, uh, 10 to 23%. Well, uh, but but, but it's still ridiculous, thing. though. We're still yeah. saying we'll have a civilization at four degrees Celsius. Yeah. We won't have a civilization. If, if we're lucky, we'll have Mad Max. Hmm. And Mad Max won't be shot in Namibia. It'll be shot in the Arctic Circle uh, because the temperature there will be 20 degrees, you know, because the Arctic is warming about five times faster than mm. the rest of the planet. It's just absurd. Mm. But that this this is what the... Because politicians are used to listening to economists, that's what they'll get mm. out of the IPCC. And that is still somebody else's problem. 10% for smaller in 2100, 80, 80 years from now. Um, mm. Why should I bother doing anything about it? We're well past the time when the economists shouldn't be playing any role at all in the IPCC. They should be thrown out. I mean, the mm. only role that they should... This is, again, the further I dig, the worse I, I find. Mm. Uh, and, like, for example, economists, as you know, this... Gabriel, do you have training in economics as well? Uh, no, no, I'm 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 actually trained as a musician. But... <laughs> You're a lucky, lucky, lucky difference. Anyway, Stephen knows this. Um, they they go on all about specialisation, how important mm. it is to specialise. Mm. You'd think they'd apply it in their own bloody research, wouldn't you? So you mm -hmm. specialise. You let the climate scientists produce the climate models, and you do the mm. economic impact. Oh no, these little mm -hmm. children had to go and make their own, what they call integrated assessment models, and they include mm. their own climate models inside them. And when you take a look mm. at the climate models, one one of the models is by my favourite asshole, pardon me, I'll use some French then, uh, Richard Toll. Uh, mm. uh, I wonder when you mentioned him. Pardon? Yeah. I wonder yeah. when you mentioned him. Yeah. 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 He, talk about a sociopath. Anyway, um, mm. he had a paper, his model called Fund, was used by two other researchers plus himself to do a economic estimate of the impact of losing the Gulf Stream, and that's the, you know, the what we it's, it's called the the technical name is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, yes, and that's yes. an enormous that's a small part of the enormous um, river of of, uh, of ocean water that flows between all the oceans on the planet, distributing heat around the planet. Yes. Yeah. And what he said in that was, if if you lose, if the AMOC gets shut down uh, completely, um, in when the global warming level is three and a half degrees, that will improve GDP by one percent. For whom? Okay, yeah. So losing the AMOC, losing the Gulf Stream, mm -hmm. 
which uh, we would plunge Europe into a mini ice age. Yeah. That'll improve GDP. Now, why did he have that? Because, well, he just measures the whole thing, uh, the, the whole relationship around temperature and says, well, global warming of three and a half degrees will push most of these countries past their optimum temperature. Okay. And then, mm -hmm. this, then therefore the freezing coming from losing the Gulf Stream will push them back a bit. So that's going to make um, things better. Well, and then... I mean, this is this this is juvenile. I mean, you looked at it, uh, and 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 I, you know, I didn't, I don't, I haven't actually looked inside the model fund. It's written in, I think, Objective C, whereas uh, you can easily read uh, Dice because it's written in a in a, a, a language which just involves straight equations. It's very easy to read. Mm. Um, so I didn't know the internal workings of fund. But in this 2016 mm. paper, shutting down the uh, thermohaline circulation, I think it's called, uh, he, he admits that his model only has temperature, it doesn't have precipitation. Wow. Okay. And he then said, we assume that other climatic variables scale with temperature, which means if temperature gets better, then we expect rainfall to get better too. We just assume <laughs> that temperature will move in the same positive direction as rainfall. Now, this is juvenile. Yeah. And he thinks he's a, he thinks he's a well, serious intellectual. Uh, whereas scientists have done the same thing, looking at the AMOC, have described the impact was catastrophic because of the mm -hmm. impact it will have on precipitation levels that he assumes yeah. are going to get better. Well, yeah. all people need to know about Richard Tolles. He, he said in a tweet once that uh, we could easily adapt to 10 degrees of global warming, which is the single most stupid tweet I've ever seen anybody anybody put on Twitter. But yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe well, it's only a, a short show, so I thought maybe we could say something about uh, TNL and the economic platform before we yes. finish. Yes, there is, there's there's yeah. so much to like in it. Uh, if uh, if it weren't for the branding issues involved, you could almost call TNL the deep greens. Uh, you've well, got the, the deep greens. I mean, <laughs> they, they they take the better greens economic policies and just push them a little bit further. The, yeah. There's the MMT lens. There's a job guarantee proposal. There's mm. a focus on well-being, and maybe, and this will please our friend Phil Lawn on a genuine progress indicator. But um, uh, the thing that to me ha had the greatest obvious input from Steve was the uh, housing market policy and the policy on household debt, which is related mm. to it. And I wonder whether Steve would like to tell us something. Sure. That. Okay. Well, if you look at the level of household debt, you go back 30 years, it was about 20% of GDP. Fast forward today, it's 120% of GDP, mm -hmm. six times yeah. the level it was compared to GDP. When you look back in the 60s and 70s, interest rates were much the same as they are now. So it's, it's, it's a much higher. We're talking about Australia here, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Much higher, much higher debt burden on Australian households now mm -hmm. than there was back in the 50s and 60s. Um, so. All that debt has been another way to create money. So it's a, that's letting the private banking sector create the money. But rather mm. than creating money on one side and reserves on the other, which is what a, a government deficit does, this creates money on one side and a debt by those private individuals back to the banks again, meaning yeah. effectively that the finance the finance sector has got the housing sector by the balls. And, yes. uh, and we're saying this was a mistake. This should never have happened. Uh, the mm. government should create money by running a deficits. The private sector can create money by lending out more than it takes back in repayments. You need a mm -hmm. balance between the two. You don't let the government uh, 
uh, ignore its role of money creation, leave it all to the private banking sector, which is what mm. we've done. So we say, well, we can use the government's money creation capability to give everybody an identical amount of money, every every uh, resident, an identical amount of money through their bank accounts, uh, which if they're in debt, they must use it to pay their debt down. And if they're not in debt, they get effectively a cash injection, which we could also mm -hmm. make into getting government bonds earning about 3 3% interest. Uh, so everybody benefits. And the idea there is to reduce the level of, of, of household debt and increase the level of reserves um, that the bank the bank sector has at the same time. And by doing that, we we change the money from being backed by debt to being mm. backed by government money creation, whether that's reserves or bonds. So how, how, how big an amount do you think would be effective? Effectively 100% of GDP, because you want to go from debt household debt being 120% now back to 20% and you want to keep it there. So that is effectively creating an amount of money equivalent to 100% of GDP. But doing how much, such, sorry, yeah. how much, how much would that be per person? I'm just trying to get my, my head around. $100,000 isn't a bad, a, a bad guess about that level. Yeah. But Which you can't just use it for whatever you want. You must it pay must be debt. used to pay debt down. Yeah. Or so, if you have no debt. Then it becomes either government bonds or we're, uh, we, we're, or we could, potentially enable it to be used for like a house deposit. If you want to get rent, if you're a renter and you want to buy into the housing market, we could make it feasible to use that as well. Because of course, what's happened under all the uh, labor and liberal policies to increase house ownership is a drastic fall in house ownership. We want to reverse that as well. So the first thing is what we call a monetary reset, reduce the amount of credit back money, yeah. increase the yeah. amount of fiat, no change to the total amount of money, just change mm -hmm. what backs that and use the government's mm -hmm. capability to make up for that mistake. Uh, and yeah. then we would also bring in what I call the uh, the PIL, Property Income Limited Leverage. Okay. Rather than letting banks pretend they lend on the basis of the income of the borrower, require them to lend no more than a, a, a multiple of the income earning capacity of the property, the rental income, either real or prospective potential of a property, mm -hmm. and aim to bring that down from its current level of about 20 times rental income. It's the mortgage, uh, average mortgage now is about 20 times the rental income of a property. Mm. Bring it down from 20 to 10. Mm. And then mean in the future, we can't, we'd no longer have this desire to borrow more money to compete with somebody else to buy that property we want to buy because right. there's a limit. Nobody can borrow more than X amount on that mm. property. So if you want to buy it, you've got to save more money. And that mm. will hopefully break the positive feedback cycle we see between um, a level of uh, borrowing for housing and rising house prices. We just want to end that trap that what's causing house prices to rise is rising leverage. Mm. Okay. Uh, I'd have to read that again to get my head around it. Okay. <laughs> it sounds... well, it's, a very, it's a very radical, interesting, yeah. you could say untested policy. That there is a, mm. There's definitely a hint of Hyman Minsky. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think Hyman would like this one. Yeah. I mean, the basic thing, we have tested policies and they've all failed. Yeah. First term buyers grant, halving the rate of capital gains tax. Yeah. Limiting the, the number of properties any one person can own? Well, I think it would make it less desirable to do it because at the moment they're only borrowing all these properties so they can make they can they can make a profit on the rising rising value of the homes. Now we say house prices have to fall. We mm. want to help price, enable house prices to fall while maintaining mm. the equity that people have in their houses. So yeah. this 
you know, yeah. if a couple gets 200,000, they pay their debt down by 200,000. If their house price falls by 200,000, they're just as well off. And in fact, they're better off because it'll take them a smaller amount of time to repay the lower yeah. amount of debt that they owe. So yeah. this benefits everybody in terms of home ownership, but it doesn't mm -hmm. benefit landlords. If you're a yeah. landlord, not for the sake of rental income, but for the sake of capital appreciation, you're not going to like us and that's your problem, not ours. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I think, thanks very much for that explanation, Steve. Yeah, go on, Debbie. I, I was just going to say, I think um, that would also, correct me if I'm wrong, but would do do something about the amount of properties that are actually empty, which could oh, yeah. Yeah. have people in them. Yeah, but I mean, the only reason it's advantageous to keep a property empty is you're expecting capital appreciation. Yeah. And yeah. we want to, it's probably house prices are too high compared to income. They can't be allowed to go any higher. We should bring them down. And in mm -hmm. that situation, that particular um, avenue for, for uh, landlords to get rich just by letting the prices rise is yeah. going to be removed. There are still some mm -hmm. Georgist issues there because, of course, if you buy a property uh, and, and you know, a vacant block of land and then 20 years later there's a train station next to the block of land, you benefit up. out of that social development. So there's still issues about how do you prevent that sort mm -hmm. of a price appreciation happening. But you want mm -hmm. to take out the price appreciation driven by higher levels of mortgage debt. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Everybody yeah, have, yeah. A look, have a read of TNL's policies online. And my um, own page, keenforthesenate.com. Yes, excellent. And thanks thanks very much for joining us today, uh, Steve. And actually next week we're going to be joined by somebody who I think you know, uh, an investment fund manager called Con Michalakis, who, uh, who sends his uh, regards. Yep. Con yep. is an NMT enthusiast and is in yep. the driving seat where the postgraduate courses that we're developing in Adelaide with Torrens University are concerned. And it'll be, it'll be very interesting speaking to Con, as it has been to Steve today. Um, all the best with uh, your operation, Steve, and uh, also all the best with the election. We mean it. Anything we can do to help yeah. Gabby and me and the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group, we'd be more than happy to. I'll tweet the stuff that. around. Help me out on Twitter to begin with. Facebook would help as well. I'm hopeless on Facebook, but anyone to, to promote us because the main problem we face is lack of awareness. Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Cut All right. Steve. Thanks, Steve. Great to okay. talk to you. Great to meet okay. you. Thank you, Steve. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.